1: If we define shamanism as, and I do like, as right relation or extra-dimensional diplomacy, right? So, the um, going back to the idea that there are persons that aren't humans, and they can be spirits, they can be trees, they can be caribou, they can be whatever. The role of the shaman, he or she mediates and negotiates. So it's a diplomatic role with the rest of the cosmos that includes spirits that includes such as they are different to plant teachers prey animals all, all the rest of it right and that is when i say that it's it's this comes back to the language use, right that is a universal, you we on the one hand we can say that is a universal human custom. But when you say when you call it a custom, what you're actually doing is lifting it up from the base level of biological as a thing that we can do and we might just do something else. Like it's learning a language. It's it's one step removed from something far more internal, which is, I think that's what humans are. I think humans fulfill a cosmic or cosmological ecological niche of being that kind of ceremonial mediator.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and we all come to this show because our families think we're crazy, right? So let's have a little bit of fun while we're learning how to convince them that we're not. And that is easier when you have brilliant folks like today's guest. You can find them at runesoup.com, but you can join his exclusive membership group where you'll get a lot of what you hear of on this show and what you might see in his RuneSoup blog in the form of a course. You can learn about UFOs, fairies, custodianship, angel magic, wealth magic, the tarot, our ancestors, working with the dead, magical geography, saints, grimoires, journeying, sigils, and so much more. It was a pleasure talking to him. It was a pleasure getting to know him for those who maybe unfamiliar with today's guest gordon white first became interested in western occultism at the age of 13 following a series of intense dream experiences and this interest became a lifelong pursuit his esoteric leanings found an inspirational overlap with his exploration of the pacific following the publication of graham hancock's classic Fingerprints of the Gods. This led him to study documentary production at a university level, film an underwater documentary about non-medal, and then go on to work for BBC Magazine, Discovery Channel, and news media companies in both hemispheres. After moving to London, he held senior data and analytics positions in global media companies, as well as starting a chaos, magic blog, and podcast called Rune Soup. That's how I first heard about him uh, after being interviewed on Greg Carlwood's the higher Side Chats talking about this blog and all of the awesome subjects that they cover in this Rune Soup blog. So definitely check that out. And while you're at it, check out his three books, The Chaos Protocols, Starships, A Prehistory of the Spirits, and Pieces of Eight, as well as he mentioned in this interview, two projects that are soon to be released. A new book called Animistic diving into a lot of the topics we covered today landscape metaphysics and the spirit of place and things as well as a Oracle deck of Lee Norman cards, that he is creating uh, in a really cool way through a Podcast video series so go check that out on his YouTube channel and and here for the first time to discuss all things animistic enjoy this conversation with gordon white before we get to that folks i just want to thank all of our awesome patrons for showing us some love on patreon so many of you are there and on rockfin too shout out to everyone on rockfin um if you'd like sign up for patreon not only do you get all of our amazing bonus content but you get a spirit animal name as well so come join the family i know you won't regret it tons of bonus content and here we are folks we've got sponsors it's 2022 and we'll never do ads on this show but sponsors we could have a few sponsors here and there they're not permanent so i want to tell you about our sponsors i know 2022 you're probably thinking what the heck's going on what do i have to expect this year it seems like some crazy stuff's gonna happen they said it's gonna be a dark winter well set your positivity compass or reset your positivity compass with Audrey Lobdell's Reiki and Tuning Fork sessions. Check her out. The link is in the description. And while you're at it, spice up the vibes of wherever you're at with our holistic healing resources at Akasha Goods. Link also in the description. And it's a little cold, but if you like the forest in winter, hit up Fru for a forest bath. That's right, Fru's forest bathing. Maybe get some consultation from her. Over the internet, or maybe you can uh, drive out and book it in person and get down in the forest with Fru. Uh, last but not least, we have crystal infused essential oils by our patron, One Thumb L. Go check her out. We give her two thumbs up. So that does it for the sponsors. Quick, painless, and on to this awesome conversation with Gordon White. Oh, and folks, listen if you sign up for the Patreon this month, in the month of January, If you sign up by January 15th, 2022, you'll be in the running for a raffle. That's right. We have hand printed t-shirts that I printed myself. Tara helped me print the t-shirts. She did one herself. Her design came out fantastic. And we're going to be raffling off these t-shirts for our patrons. We have two t-shirts that are going to be raffled off and a surprise gift as well. So if you sign up for the Patreon by January 15th, 2022, you can be in the runnings for some free merch. That's right. Uh, As long as you're above the $5 tier, you will be put in the raffle running. So sign up now for above the $5 tier. That's the best way to get all the bonus content anyways. So thank you. And uh, that's it. Enjoy this conversation with Gordon White. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and on today's show is a man who hosts his own podcast. He's written several books as well as the head of a very interesting school. I hope he tells us much more about it. It's all on his membership site. It's a great community from what I've heard. He's a staple in this community, in my opinion, and I've really enjoyed looking over his book, Chaos Magic. So, Gordon... Thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Mark. No problem. Does your family think you're crazy, Gordon?
1: Uh, So my mother's an energy healer and my father's a retired psychiatrist. So no, if you've been doing it for long enough, here's the thing. I'll periodically have a very good relationship with my father, so don't read it this way, but like, I will periodically have a big argument about something, the CIA's involvement in in psychiatry, something like that, and he'll deny it. And he'll be like, that's not true. And I'm like, okay. And then a month or so later, he will have worked out that I in fact was correct and so on. So they, so my father will temporarily think I'm crazy about some things, but no, I kind of blend in. The rest of the family, like the siblings and so on, I think it helps having an energy healer mother and so on. So if they think I'm crazy, it's a a benign crazy, but uh, you know, there are, there are predictive techniques in the world, like we were just talking before you hit record, like astrology and so on, that you only have to spend a little bit of time with them to realize there's something to it. And, and they've kind of got that experience after several decades of like, well, he's going to say some odd stuff, but he's been right before. And that's generally where I'm at with my family.
0: I love that. Yeah, I hope to uh, gain that credibility myself. I mean, definitely helps. It sounds like... Uh cunning folk runs in your blood and I've heard you discuss this before I remember first coming across this term when uh looking through I think you know Wicca by Scott Cunningham and and hearing about this and and being from New England you know in America it has a similar mystique and it really felt interesting to me but the more I learned about Wicca the more I learned it was really Shamanism, I mean, it's just rebranded shamanism and I find it really fascinating how much work you've done with shamanism. So I'm, I'm interested to, to take, you know, that apart when you say energy healer, is it a shamanistic type practice that your mother takes part in? What would, what no, would her particular flavor? Well, it's funny.
1: That that hinges on how you define shamanism, right? Because when you say Wicca is basically shamanism, I sort of think of the Spider-Man meme where actually if you think of the 20th century understanding of shamanism, it's Wicca and Wicca's it and they're pointing at each other, right? Because they actually sort of evolved out of the same almost like historical moment in, in the post-war West and like, there's a sort of like a rise of, of popular anthropology and, and all the rest of it, right? So for, for good and for ill, because there's, there's a lot to be critiqued in, in the 20th century application of the word shamanism to everything. Now, having said that, just to answer your question, you can... With certain caveats, use a category term like shamanism to talk about uh, spiritual techniques or even just, you know, not that there's any difference with this, even just herbalisms around the world, right? So in that sense, my mother's praxis isn't shamanic. She's a, the the, the core discipline is called pranic healing, but pranic healing quote unquote works the same way shamanic modalities and animist modalities have worked around the world since forever. So it's not an explicitly shamanic framework, but it works because the word we, the word shamanism, we use it to describe something that's true, which is that humans have these capacities and and people with practice can kind of like get better at
0: them. I agree. I think it is important and people kind of lump it all into one, it all connects to us. It doesn't really uh, matter which culture it is. It seems that You know, wherever we look on the planet, we find these sort of modalities interacting with the herbal world, the, you know, mineral kingdom, even the, you know, celestial kingdom. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to you about your, your new book, Animistic. Most people, when you tell them like something like a crystal has a consciousness, they, they just sort of write it off. Average person who's not aware of what we're talking about here possibly, but there is something really true and Impactful about not just crystals, but the land, inanimate things that we would consider inanimate objects having conscious aspects to them. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I'd, and so I'd phrase it differently, and that's literally why I wrote a whole book about it. And and it's such an electrifying term, animism. Right? And it's really, I'm glad, Mark, that we actually picked up a book to look into it because that's basically what my whole new book swings on, which is we. The term is really dark, right? So the the term emerges from basically the 19th century, European early anthropologists, basically trying to understand why brown people are stupid compared to white people like so there are cultures who don't understand the difference between dreams and reality and and they think trees uh have personalities and all this kind of stuff so the word is comes from the most profoundly racist part of european history and and it's it's a word used to describe what they would have considered to be a naive worldview or a naive theory of mind. Now, why it's electrifying to sit with the, or stay with the trouble of that term now is that it's it's a cosmic joke. We were wrong. Like the, the the people with the naive theory of mind were the 19th century Europeans who thought we lived in some kind of like clockwork universe that was sort of like their steam trains just running on power and gradually powering down, and that there was no intelligence or anything. And it's just the, the most ludicrous cosmology and theory of mind ever. And we're still in the in the shadow of that, right? We're still in the rain shadow, if you will, of this kind of really dumb, dumb, dumb idea. And so the, the term is is potent to stay with because it forces, like us as a quote unquote culture, to look at how we think about beings that aren't human, how we think about other humans, what it means to be here, and and also why we have to think about that now is the kind of like is the political journey we've been on. So the term itself is electrifying, and and I wouldn't say the trouble with saying uh, it's to do with objects having a consciousness is that it's not exactly. That's still a that's still stuck in a Western theory of mind, right? So I'll, I'll give you the definition and then I'll explain the definition because it's a bit annoying. So Graham Harvey would say that animism is the extension of personhood beyond the human, right? So we, and thanks largely to Descartes we've, with I Think Therefore I Am and so on, we think that human and person is the same thing. Now, no other culture anywhere in the world, any when, including our own, ever thought that up until... 300 years ago and quite literally the people who were in, uh, followed on from Descartes saw so that your dog was literally some kind of like meat robot with no just instincts and no personality and no personhood. See that it's, that it's there in the word. It is a metaphysical statement. Personhood isn't biologically determined to be just in humans, right? Like this is a, it's a, it's a metaphysical framework. So I can say a tree is a person. And I don't have to, and and the first time you hear that, you go, well, no, it isn't because I don't mean that it went to the same school I did and likes, you know, Breaking Bad. What I mean is that there are persons in the universe. In fact, the universe is made up of persons, only some of whom are human. So that's kind of different to, not that you can't have rocks that have spirits in them, but animism as a, a as a framework a framework of personhood can exist without having to kind of like make statements about the kind of intelligent capacity of crystals. It's literally how do you define a person? Because the pet owners listening to this would be like, well, yeah, of course my pet is some kind of person, and that's that's animism. That's just what it is <laughs> at its base. It, you you could, although it's this is quite difficult having just said this. Technically, you could be some sort of like, you could be an animist without an understanding or even a quote-unquote belief in spirits, right? And why that's a technicality is that spirits are, spirits are formulated differently in cosmologies that aren't dualist. So we think of a spirit as some kind of being that doesn't have, that, that can be put in an object, right? Like a genie in a lamp or, or or a consciousness in a crystal. But for an animist, the crystal, certain crystals are persons, right? So it's it's actually, it's... It's almost like it's sort of like riding a bike, right? if you the first time you do it, quite challenging, quite challenging to kind of like make that pivot into an animist framework. But then once you dare, it makes complete sense we we kind of we move into it with with the felt awareness that the the more than human world, the trees and and uh, other animals and so on are a kind of being, but then we come into it with the framework that we grew up with and and we try to like add some magic to it or add some supernatural to it, like well, oh well, this tree has a consciousness in it. And it's like, no, the tree is a being. Let's start just with this basic biological idea that the tree is a being. And then it kind of builds or or emerges from there. And it is a different, fundamentally different kind of being to a human and to a horse and, and so on. And for me, that's that's animism. And why why it's so urgent now is that it's a framework that cries out for self-healing and these are f- fraught words, but an improved environmental relationship, and and it, it it contains with it the thing that I think people were looking for in the 20th century as they went appropriating all these kind of cultures with the rise of things like neo shamanism and, and Wicca and so on. It, it it is the right medicine for right now to kind of like stay with this term.
0: Um, that's that's why it's a whole book
1: and a very lengthy answer. <laughs>
0: I agree. And I I definitely am excited to look into that further. I don't want to go into it too much because we want people to check out the book, but I think it's important to go back to the beginning of what you just said, because I fundamentally agree with what you said. I mean, how I came into this whole uh, world of different perspectives and theories was through an experience I had in college, you know, just being sort of on the, you know, Basically a, a few months away from dropping out smoking joints in between classes. And I ran into this guy who told me he was from Arizona. He's a native American guy. And we got to talking about all sorts of things. We started talking about skull and bones. We started talking about how his ancestor Geronimo had been, you know, grave robbed and brought to this fine establishment, Yale university, which I wasn't in that school, but I was, you know, on the precipice of it and you kind of rub shoulders with those types. And it was very, very stark and kind of depressing to find out some of the things that actually went on in the colonial days. And then they just get sort of swept under the rug and these big universities are built and, and they'll, you know, have some museum, you know, exhibits that kind of show the artwork of these people. But it's, it's, It's really uh, frustrating, you know, and I think now more than ever, especially with the podcast community, you see people trying to reconnect with the earth and they see that cultures that haven't been, uh, let's say, tainted by the Western ideologies, wherever that started, have this sort of deeper connection with the earth. So naturally you see people gravitating towards, you know, indigenous cultures, whether it be you know here in north america south america even asia and where you're at in uh, australia and even you know further back if we look into the history books we see the same thing happened in europe so it's really a you a, a universal thing this you know sort of earth culture that slowly got more and more separated from its connection with earth mother I, feel like maybe now i'm giving you a sort of lengthy uh rant without a question here but would you would you agree with that and what what do you think you know caused this disconnect that left those 19th century thinkers so in the dark about what these cultures were actually experiencing and interacting with
1: well i'll answer the i'll answer the so the difference between the 20th century and now when it comes to looking at I wouldn't say tainted or untainted, because there's sort of nowhere left, really. There's like three tribes in the Amazon. What in the 20th century we looked at the disenchantment of the post-war, particularly in the United States, the, the post-war boom and era, and it was very acquisitional, and hyper-capitalist and so on. And the counterculture and hippies and, and what have you went in went in a different direction. And and in within that is the kind of Carlos Castaneda shamanism thing. Now we're at a similar moment now, but it, it's a question of the difference between taking and learning from, right? So, and this is the appropriative challenge. In the 20th century, we didn't like the last thing that we had to take from the descendants of Geronimo was their culture. So we did. So it's like, okay, cool. I'll hang up the the dream catchers and I'll put a sweat lodge in the backyard, and you know, and and I'm I'm whiter than Julie Andrews, but this is this is what I do now, and that is we thought that was like a good thing to do, but it's actually like the final, we took everything else and that's the last thing to take, right? So that's the difference between learning and and taking from. So when we talk about things like disconnect, is sort of challenges with that word because we're at a point where, okay, cool. How then do we learn from cultures that have been more severely impacted by the colonial process? Because they clearly have urgent medicine for us and for them that they're willing to share. It's not like, Hey, tell me all your secrets. Like the whole book is actually about the things that the challenge with how to learn in a non-extractive way, how, how, how do, how do we have cross-cultural encounters that are co-enriching, right? And this is coming around to, I guess, the second point, sort of, we do that by recognizing within our own, at least initially recognizing with our, within our own historical journey as we we're just saying we have a shared culture here like but like you only need to go back 350 years to find a a Europe that or, or Britain, and even to some extent, although obviously the colonial project was well underway by then, even in the new world to find people who actually did understand the rhythms of the seasons. And and so like all the all the Christian festivals and astrological signs and all the rest of it are kind of tied to the movement of, of seasons. So we used to do it. That's kind of the key. And, and a key part of that, we mentioned cunning traditions at the beginning, which we should get back to, is to recognize not to become, not to become like a, an Iroquois medicine woman, but into the knowledge that is available from, say, an Iroquois medicine woman and kind of go, Well, what is that saying about the world and how do I sit with that? And is this something that we um had or have or, or used to? Like it, it's it's a conversation between equals, right? Hence hence the book. But like how we came to it is also in the book, is I, I use a paraphrase. Hemingway for how it is we as the Westerners uh, came to this terrible situation. And the answer is Hemingway slowly at first, but, and then all at once, like, how did you go bankrupt slowly at first? Then all at once is essentially how we ended up in this situation, because you can make a very good. And I do make a very good critique of classical Greek thought and it's sort of separation of the physical or the material from the holy, right? And in fact, it's a um, radical theologian Matthew Fox said the worst thing Christianity did was inherit the idea from the Greco-Roman world that the physical is far from the sacred. Uh, and we got that from the Greeks. Everyone wanders around saying it was the Christians who did it. No, they just inherited it, right. And so that's a slow that's the slowly at first the all at once is essentially the Enlightenment and it's essentially Descartes. Like you got to pin the blame on someone and Descartes is a fun one to pin the blame on because what he was actually trying to do was the opposite. He was trying to, a good Catholic boy that he was, he was trying to save God because there he is at the beginning of the Enlightenment and all these geologists and, and, and biologists are saying like, oh, the world is X million years old and blah, blah, blah. And it's all contrary to obviously the faith of his childhood, which how would be biblically described. So he set about trying to like go, okay, well, if they're essentially desacralizing and de-supernaturalizing the natural, where do I find God? And that's where like he went through to get to. I think therefore I am was a process of essentially trying to prove God. Unfortunately. It, that's as good a point as any to say, okay, well, what he's done then is turn the entire universe into effectively a machine that God sets. And so that's how we get to where we are. Slowly at first with the Greek era, then all at once uh, with the Enlightenment. And and it's re- that it, that's the answer for it. It's fascinating because why it is that this one little corner of the world came up with literally like the most naive and stupidest particularly like the remember the new atheist in like the early noughties We're, we can consider that the peak of it where people would literally stand up and with their consciousness and say that consciousness is like an epiphenomena of like brain chemicals and and it's just the dumbest most pathological worldview I think anyone has ever come up with and that's that's how we got to it so we've got a long climb out of it and there are I hope we, we need to learn how to learn, and then we need to learn from cultures that didn't make such a
0: silly mistake, I think. I would agree, yeah. I would, I would like to see, you know, how we can turn this into maybe teaching myself and the listeners how we can use some of those cunning folk lessons maybe applied through that lens, because y- you're absolutely right. You find that no culture is separate from this way of life that is more interconnected with the earth. I think it know it's why that subject was so fascinating to me shamanism because i saw how universal it was it's just it's like an underlying current in every culture
1: yes so if if we define shamanism as and i do like as right relation or extra-dimensional diplomacy right so the um Going back to the idea that there are persons that aren't humans, and they can be spirits, they can be trees, they can be caribou, they can be whatever. The role of the shaman, he or she mediates and negotiates, so it's a diplomatic role with the rest of the cosmos that includes spirits, that includes such as they are different to plant teachers, prey animals, all all the rest of it, right? And that is... When I say that it's it's this comes back to the language use, right? That is a universal. On the one hand, we can say that is a universal human custom. But when you say when you call it a custom, what you're actually doing is lifting it up from the base level of biological as a thing that we can do, and we might just do something else, like it's learning a language. It's it's one step removed from something far more internal, which is I think that's what humans are. I think humans fulfill a cosmic or cosmological ecological niche of being that kind of ceremonial mediator. And and that's a thing that I, you know, I learned from various Aboriginal Australian nations understandings of what it is to be in corroboree and in ceremony and so on. But even the words, this is a challenge, even the words we bring to try to understand it have come from this 18th century academic tradition that does this separating and pulling apart. Like, I, I don't wanna call it a universal human practice. I want to say, because I think it's clearer and more correct that this is what humans do and we're just not doing it. <laughs> like witness what we've done to the, to the planet, right? And that that's, that's a crucial difference. And that's one of the ways I would like that we can learn with and and co-exchange with cultures outside of uh, the so-called west is to kind of realize that on a on a base level humans are supposed to be that where not every single person should be a shaman but culturally we are supposed to be in right relation with everything else in the cosmos
0: right yeah and i think you know (laughs) you're articulating things that have been in my mind for many years and you're gonna like to bookmark You're articulating it much better than I can. So I love that you're here right now. I want to switch gears a little bit though, because I did ask you, uh, if we could go over your book, the chaos protocols, because like I said, I picked it up, I enjoy it and I'm seeing as I flip through the pages, you know, how it's connecting to, you know, where we're going, where we're heading with this transhumanist, maybe agenda. I'm wondering, you know, in hindsight with everything that's happened in the past two years. Do you think there's, you know, some things that you touched on in your book there that are sort of ringing true more than you thought?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. From the second it came out and then America went insane with um, right. panicking over the, the Trump election and so on, like it, it was all there. But funny enough, the beginning chat, which is the lengthiest one, kind of trying to give a top level overview of the why of the book, like the economic currents and and so on, where that's what the so called great reset is about. Like the Western governments, particularly European governments, can no longer fund themselves because they've destroyed their bond market. So they're literally this is what? Moving into a central bank digital currency is to keep this game running because they can't they can't fund themselves anymore. And that's that's the the clash world angle, right? That's what the CBDCs are about and Klaus and so on. And the whole book is about we are fucked because, not like the whole book is about we are fucked, like that chapter is explaining that people find the bond market really, really boring because on the one hand it is, but on the other hand, this is how governments fund themselves and consequently the people, the bondholders are the people who kind of like run governments. So it's everyone, particularly in the conspiracy world, wants it to be a global cabal of satanic pedophiles meeting up somewhere and 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 running the world and it's not like there isn't you know elite sexual abuse and trafficking all the rest of it of course Mm. but actually how very often how the world is run and and why people do things Is available to us. It's just boring, and and we want it to be, we want it to be Hillary Clinton sacrificing children or whatever, right? When in fact it's just well, who actually owns the most U.S. bonds? And it's very difficult to find that. You actually, you countries have to kind of publicly submit that they own bonds and whatever. But actually, it's their private assets. You don't actually know (laughs) who owns which bonds, right? And and that whole process is kind of coming to an end. So I think about the first chapter a lot, and the kind of like great reset, Rockefeller reset, the table stuff to do with the food and the basement. And I think I'm actually pretty happy <laughs> from five years out with where it's uh, gone or been. What I don't think anyone expected, I knew the when, and we could talk about that later, but I didn't know the what. No one expected a a, a pandemic narrative would be used to imprison most of the population of the world for two years, right? Like So that was the unexpected play. I figured it was going to be something biological, but I didn't think it would be that. So that the the economic or, or the the sort of magical strategies that can be deployed in like a specific sort of corporate infrastructure, which is kind of like the second half of the book, are still in play, but the 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 field on on, on which you kind of like go to war is is different, I think. I, I think that Workplaces have fundamentally changed and access to them has fundamentally changed depending on whether or not you're rejected and all the rest of it. But the, the baseline idea of like seeing what's going on in the world and then reclaiming that, which is the birthright of every single human, reclaiming that, we might as well call it magical capacity. Uh, and I, I, anything, any other word beyond that is like to... Uh, It over describes it. So when I say magical capacity, I include prayer in that I include intentionality. It's not just, you know, killing chickens at a crossroad right it's humans coming back to that idea what we are is a being that is. that is constantly in hyperdimensional or extra-dimensional diplomacy. We are in relation to much, much bigger forces all the time. And that's what I mean by it being a human birth We express that with things like prayer, but we can also express it with like more explicit acts of magic.
0: Wow. Yeah, a lot to a lot to go back, but you to go back to what you said about the why. Cause I think that I think you're hinting at something there. And I think it's has to do with the astrological forecast. And I guess I'll just ask you, why was 2020 so important for oh. them to, to make this happen now? Like what, I assume that's where you're alluding to. No, I,
1: I, I meant more that, so there's a couple of astrological, cause it was 2020. Yes. Um. There are some models outside of astrology that I'm really, I'm really interested in all cycle models. I like Kondratiev waves. I like my favorite at the moment is, and has been for years is Martin Armstrong's AI run or Socrates run economic confidence model. So astrology is at its base. If you look at where it came from historically, the observation of what's going on in the night sky and the recording of what's going on on the planet at that time and over centuries and millennia, you start to see that when this little yellow dot is here, these things happen. And when this little red dot, it moves like that, these things happen. And so it's, it, yeah, astrology is is generated based on, or was generated based on real world data in, in Babylon and, and so on. Right. And these, which makes it an economic cycle model. And it makes economic cycle models like the Kondratiev wave. Astrology, because it's the same idea. It's like observing when these things happen; they tend to go together, right? And so, the storm model has very specific dates about when certain things are going to happen and turning points and whatever. It got January sixth; it got the crash that came at the beginning of twenty twenty in Q one, and all the rest of so all these things that kind of happen. Fascinating turning points, right? So that's what I meant by I knew the when. The story of the story of this decade is the story of, by the end of it, there will be fewer stars on the flag, right? Like America is heading towards divorce, and uh, Beijing is heading towards being financial capital of the world. I hope we get to that. That's just what happens. Like the westward movement of capital has been going on for centuries. Like it, it went from let's just start it in in Babylon or Egypt, and then it moved through Rome, and then it moved through Spain, and then it moved through Britain, and then it moved through the east coast of the US. We're coming out of the west coast of the US, rise of Silicon Valley, and it's jumping to the east coast, the east coast of Asia, right to, to Beijing capital moves. This is one of those cycles on, on a cycle of centuries. It just keeps moving west. Right. And it'll be in Asia for about 400 years and then it will get back to Europe. That's what happens. So I hope we can get to that next stage without calamitous nuclear wars. Cause that's wh- what we have to do this decade is move into a multipolar world and the people in charge don't want to, and even if they did, they aren't up to the task. So that's kind of what I meant by I knew the when <laughs> and and the what. Didn't expect the no. A few people, I think, expected a a pandemic narrative being used as air cover for the attempted sort of like reorganization of it. Because you need to realize that what the G7 is trying to do is maintain control of a world where all the growth comes from G20. So if you are going to these meetings like Davos and so on, you look at the the post-industrial European nations with aging populations. So Germany is the second oldest in the world after Japan. And you look at where all the growth is, economic growth, demographic growth. So countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, the average age of a citizen is like 21, I think. Whereas it's like... 49 or something or 46 in Germany, right? So you if your job is planning and you're looking at this, you're like, okay, cool. Well then how do we manage growth? How do we maintain control when growth is over there? And the things you put in place, a digital currency control system that is tied to carbon compliance, right? Because it's it's all well and good for Western countries who've de-industrialized to now go look at us, we're also green. It's like, well, you're not though, are you? You're just getting your stuff made in countries that still run things and coal factories and and the rest of it. So that's the pivot. They're trying to keep their game running with this new technological thing. And they have to do it now because um, China is doing the same thing, right? Like China's building out its own version of Swift. It's already got its social credit system and and all the rest of it. So China's on the way to building its digital control system. So whoever gets there first, the, the kind of inertia of that from a trade perspective will tip everyone else in. So people kind of miss where the what the goal is for from this level right so that's what i mean like i knew the the when because it's obvious it's not it's not even like you need to be especially good at the tarot to work out that like all countries like all empires america's on the decline it doesn't mean it's going to end up like cormac mccarthy's the road it doesn't mean the country collapses just like britain did in the 20th century it's on the way down and there's another one on the way up right and it would be great if we could do that without going to war, but I don't think, (laughs) I don't think that's, but yeah, it's a long time. This is going to be a long decade, right? It's only the beginning of 2022.
0: Right. Well, it it is sort of, you know, sobering a little bit to hear the inevitability of it, the way you put it, because I think that is something that stresses me out to say the least, but also a little worry, you know, worries me a little bit because I see a lot of people in our community, you know, that care about truth and, and having open discourse about this stuff, get into this, you know, stricken, fear-stricken state where, you know, the world is collapsing and, you know, China's going to do this and all we're all going to, you know, be in a, a yeah. matrix slave state. So it's... We're not doing it gracefully, right?
1: Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. We're doing it with all the grace of Britney Spears falling out of a car. Like, it's just... <laughs> And that's because, particularly, although this country is is disappointing in its own way, I'm in mean, Australia. If people haven't worked out from the accent. The you guys have not been uh, the brainwashing you guys got growing up in the United States has this kind of like capitalist eternalism and and national superiority and kind of like cosmic American mission. And now that, that it's becoming clear that that was always crap, <laughs> that was always advertising copy. People have to do two things at once, which is to get their head around collapse or transition whilst at the same time transitioning. So there's a lot. And yes, the, China's going to do this. China's going to invade the, 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 the boomer terror. Is disappointing in the conspiracy world. It should stay on Facebook where it's written in all caps by my my parents' friends, right? Like it's it's the the cynophobia. It's not that it isn't a dictatorial by communist regime. It it really is. That's not the point. Uh, the point is kind of people are sort of vomiting their shadow, China's behind all of this, China's doing all these things. It's it's not were it so clean-cut, that would be great, but it isn't. And and also this is a real good thing about frameworks like astrology or magic in general, is that the tremendous medicine. Something like astrology is this too shall pass, right? So it sucks right now, but this will pass. But along with that, is I don't want to say like this is a weird way of saying America too shall pass, but like the the role that the United States has in the world and the way it sees itself. Is going to pass because it always does. Like the United States at the beginning of the 20th century was anti-interventionist and wanted to leave, and rightly so. Wanted to leave the rest of their world, the rest of the world, particularly Europe, to its dumb little colonial wars. And it took a lot to get the United States to be this sort of militant expansionist thing that it became in the 20th century because that's what suited the the, the banking powers, like the Rockefellers and so on. And we're we're in a bit. The, the, the kind of American psyche's natural state is one of isolationism. It's just this has been this 100-year maniacal invasion of, <laughs> of everywhere else in the world. And so there's good news coming too, right? We're just like, well, God, we don't have to do that anymore. That'd be great. That's one of the things that was, um, one of the interesting things looking over the second half of the 20th century as Britain packed out its empire was, culturally speaking, a a rediscovery of Britishness and Englishness and Scottishness and so on. If you think of the sex pistols and, and kind of like swinging 60s and all the rest of it, all of that stuff happened as part of a, okay, well, we're not. The British Empire anymore, what are we then? It all that sort of reconfiguration of what it meant to be British or English or Scottish or or what have you. So there's good news, there's good news coming in, in America's inevitable retirement from being like the global sheriff. So if people are concerned about it, just think about the well, hang on, what do we want to be then? Because it's happening anyway.
0: I like that. Yeah, that's the optimism that I hope people will find on the show. And, (laughs) you know, I I think that's the optimism I have that that makes me feel a little naive sometimes because I don't focus on the current events on this show and I really don't focus on it in my daily life. You know, I've done a lot to de-stress my world by doing that and uh, finding content like the one, like, well, I'll say, like what we can find on RuneSoup and other great podcasts have helped me See the world for what it actually is, rather than what you know. the The drumbeat of the media is constantly telling us it is. So, Agreed. So one of the best things people can do
1: is just avoid all of that nonsense. Like honestly, I I'm trying to do my best. 2020, I kind of ran like a newsroom for members because there was enough. experience I had Like I used to work in media and so on. So I'm like, cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna surface what I can find, and I was doing that all day, every day, to help people navigate or kind of like situate a framework, but from a lot of last year, the the less you can focus on it, the better, because why are you stressing your amygdala and why are you causing like actual physical damage to yourself by listening to, I don't know, mainstream news when you, you don't, it's wrong. You don't need to, you're actually going to get dumber and get, get less healthy. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good move, Mark. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Well, and you know, it leads me into something that We've been talking about on the show a lot, and uh, I know you are very familiar with this because of the new book coming out, but the landscape itself seems to be calling to me. I think, you know, a friend of mine, Michael Wan, who I do a show with weekly, uh, really inspired me to look into my own backyard after everything he found in the Susquehanna River Valley. And that in itself has led to so much, you know, A, synchronicities, but B, actual, I don't want to say discoveries, because this information was already out there, but personally, it was a discovery, you know, looking into my own history, where I'm from, and I think there's something that podcasting in particular offers people, and I try to do it with that show with Mike, where we show people, you know, hey, there are things exciting for you to find in your own life, in your own backyard, when you open yourself up to it with this sort of what we've been calling it a synchromistic awareness. But really, I don't think that's all that different than what you were describing earlier with this sort of, you know, take at, you know, animism. And it's not, you know, it's not all that different. I mean, the stone structures, the, you know, energies of the land, they're literally seeping out and calling to people over the past few years and 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 i've taken a a journey into it now you know actually taken the uh, invite (laughs) good
1: you're coming back into right relation that's what's happening that's the the other good news of this process the the technocratic hijack for the most part fails because it's it doesn't work like the the cosmology is wrong this. And I know Chris Knowles, you mentioned him before, a lot of that stuff. He says about these people have these stupid mid 20th century scientific ideas that they're going to have like Jetsons cars and shit, the people running the world, like that, those things. They don't work because they're built in a framework of materialism that is itself wrong. So that's a big part of, with the injections, one of the reasons, like they don't work. That's just as simple as that. They don't work because we haven't, that's not how human biology or biology at all works, right? So coming back to what you were saying, the technocratic hijack is going to kind of take care of itself in the sense of it's going to fail. We're still going to be stuck in this kind of For however long, silly, check-in, demented surveillance tyranny, they're going to keep trying, but it's not going to work. But what's happening in the meantime, and it's what the arrival of the technocratic hijack has um, forced upon those people who are kind of ready to wake up, is a return to right relations. So everyone else is like, well, this is all gross. This kind of like, um, this you will own nothing and be happy, great reset uh, technocracies awful it, it tastes bad in my mouth like this is just like evil right and it's the presence of that has caused people to go well what is about me what are the beings in which i am in relation with like what are the hills what are the trees and that's really good i hope and i don't think we go back to it not that we ever go back to anything kind of normal right i just mentioned this the decade has the trajectory that it has but i hope we never I hope that doesn't go away. I hope more and more people like yourself, Mark, re-enchant and come back into right relation with where they are. I think that's wonderful. That is animism. That's great.
0: Thank you. Well- To go into that a little further, what are some practices that you might recommend to myself or the listeners? I mean, we kind of touched on cunning folk a little bit, but we haven't really given it a fair shake. Can we go into that any further and how, I mean, other than, you know, herbology and understanding plant medicine, which I'm sure there's a lot to say about that. Is there anything else?
1: Well, there's, that's kind of like two questions. There's things everyone can do and there's a discussion of the cunning tradition, right? So actually, one of the courses in the members areas on magical geography and there are techniques in there that uh, allow people to kind of like rediscover what Shuala de Lubrich called the intelligence of the heart which is the mode of communication with the more than human world is principally heart-centered and so people one of the first things you want to do is sit with what I said about It's an arbitrary definition that we've just made humans the only persons on the planet. When you realize that's true, there's no reason for that. Why isn't a tree a person? Then go for a walk in the woods. Go for a walk in the woods and see them as beings. Don't see them as trees. See them as beings that will very likely outlast you. That's even better. So there are trees on my property, I live in a little farm in Southern Tasmania, that predate Federation. So that was 1901 for straight. Not many, there's like one tree that does, fair enough. But, and there are other ones that will hopefully outlast me, including ones that I'm planting like heritage um, apple trees and so on. But like walk through the more than human worlds with the understanding that they are beings. And that doesn't mean that, like I said, it doesn't mean you can talk to them about what you're watching on Netflix. But they are beings that share the cosmos with you at this point in time. That's the bit that we don't get. Like, we're both here right now, this tree and you. We're both here right now. That makes us, and this is a real indigenous idea, that makes us some kind of relatives. Because here we are at this moment in the physical world, like sharing, like, Chunks of time, and there are trees that haven't, and there are trees that will come. Just so there are humans and not. But if you are here in the cosmos right now, with these beings, this is your community of beings, right? And so you can. There's nothing spooky about doing that as as you go in the walks, right? Like just to see that these trees and shrubs and rivers are beings, and that that's definitional. You're not saying anything woo by doing it. You're just kind of like reclaiming from too narrow a definition what things like personhood is so that's the beginning because you do that and it will you do that a number of times and the rest of it is like pushing on an open door the rest of it is like okay well it's going to be much easier than to move into an intelligence of the heart based uh, method of communication and that again is a birthright thing humans should be able to do that and the trick is human like a plant doesn't have a brain right it doesn't have that structure it doesn't have a mouth and so the thoughts that co-arise when you're like when you fill your awareness with a particular plant the thoughts that co-arise when as that happens is a mode of communication from the tree right or the plant or the what have you and you can actually there's there's some very like well famous for herbalists like Stephen Howard Buhner he for decades he's been doing workshops with people and he'll give them plants and they like try this technique and everyone's like i don't know how to do this i don't know how to do this. So just sit there fill the plant with your awareness just like let it just and the way i do it is to basically think that the plant or, or tree or whatever that i'm about to come into a relationship with is the most beautiful thing i've ever seen like a parent to a child just look at it and marvel which is easy because i like plants but like marvel at, at the shape and the color and 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 what have you and just see what happens and what what would happen with these workshop attendees, he'd give them the plants and they'd be like, I think this one, this one's really happy. And this one's, you know, they'll they'll start giving their descriptions back to Stephen. And he's like, that's and two thirds of the time, or if not a bit more. The personality they get back from the plant aligns with the traditional herbal associations of if it's happiness or maternal or what have you. So there's something to and that really helps people go, oh wow, there's there's definitely something to do this. Cause there is. Like this comes back to this is what humans are right this is we're in the universe at the same time as these beings and we have that method of communication we just told ourselves in the west a few centuries ago that we didn't and we must have looked truly insane well i mean we were insane but we must have looked truly insane as europeans getting in our little wooden boats and and heading out into the world to people who are actually who never lost that method of communication. And what the hell is wrong with them? I live in Tasmania and there are people who, uh, which was, and to some extent still is, a prison. So, you know, famous prison breaks of convicts getting out of wherever. And they die in the the bush, in in the wilderness here, of starvation. And if you think, the native Tasmanians looking at these people dying of starvation in what is effectively an aisle of their supermarket it's just really dumb. Like that's a dumb <laughs> thing to have happen, right? Because they died surrounded by plants that they had no idea were edible or, or no ways of understanding how to, like which animals they could capture and how. And and that, so our version of that now as a recovery thing is, is do the walk through the trees and understand them as beings, right? So that's the first thing. The coming tradition thing, The, the word is, really important the word comes from how i use the word so cunning folk are people who have in a european context fulfilled that role of of mediator and healer since forever right so and inside that and the reason the word is used um, historically is because the word witch is bad and and i actually i think that's a fair I have a problem with, not that I have a problem with modern witchcraft, but I have a problem with modern witchcraft claiming the word witch is wholly benign. It's not. And in the rest of the world, it isn't. But also in a historical context or a European context, you, a witch is a pejorative. You could call someone a witch and then, you know, burn her, right? But the cunning folk were what people who think witchcraft is benign actually are doing, right? And it's the right framework to sit with if you are involved in magic in the 21st century because one of the things we need to clean on our journey is to come back into right relation with Christianity and that's not the sort of 20th century dismissal of it as Again, like I just kind of mentioned, most of the things people dislike about it were inherited, cosmologically Dislike about it. Historically, there is much to critique, but typically conning folk would have familiars, they would have saints that they would work with or angels or so on. And it would be in this framework and with these beings that they would be administering healing and, and so on, right? And that's a specialist, like it's good for people to know that that's in our kind of like cultural lineage, I guess, but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to toddle off and and become a, a cunning woman, right? That's not exactly it, but that's what the tradition is. And we've kind of, the 20th century's misused the word witchcraft for, for many good reasons, but the reality is it's in a European historical context, especially that was like a bad word. And, and also from a Fortian perspective, right? Or even a cryptid perspective, which has to do a lot of heavy lifting as a word. And this is where I think people who are trying to claim it as uh, as female empowerment, it's not that you can't do that, but that it's not the, the whole, the, the use of the word doesn't begin and end there, right? Because if you look at stories of like ufology through history, stuff like cattle mutilations would happen in places like Italy uh, and Austria. And they would be just dis- uh, ascribed to witches who would come at night and sort of, Take all the blood out of the cattle and kind of cut them in ritualistic ways. So they knew that these were some kind of like demonic or evil beings, right? And so witch is used in that sense, and like the the quote unquote shaman at Skinwalker Ranch, that's not a human being, right? But and and so we can't say all shamans are mediators in the same way we can't say all witches are feminist icons. It's the the term has to do more heavy lifting if we're going to start doing cross cultural co-understanding better doesn't mean you can't use it it just means you don't have exclusive access to it and that's why the the sort of recentering of the cunning traditions which is what's happening magically in over the last few years i think is quite important because it gives people the the intellectual room to kind of situate themselves in what it is they're, they're drawn to
0: absolutely yeah it's definitely helpful to remove all that historical uh baggage you know for sure i i think that's why a lot of people as you put are a little turned off by the whole christian thing and it's funny you know to take it back to what you're talking about counterculture it seems to me like there are sort of two roots of conspiratorial thinking and it comes from the apocalyptic christian and then the counterculture sort of lone wolf type rugged figure and I try to gravitate towards the the latter, but you know, it, there's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of that cosmological mysticism that does get me interested. You know, I don't wholly write off what the Christians are saying, but I just try to take it with a big, big grain of salt because it's mixed in with that. You know, we're all doomed.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's worth pointing one. I don't consider that Christianity. I consider that churchianity. But you're absolutely right that uh, the conspiracy world. Has two lineages, and one of them is the people who grew up in these really awful, kind of like gross mega church worlds, and rightly so fell out of it. But that framework is still there. That kind of like terrifying apocalypse is upon us, a satanic pedophile framework. They still, they still have that as a cosmology. Now, that's actually not Christianity. That's kind of my point. <laughs> that's churchianity, and and but and that. If you come back into right relation with Christianity, you can see that you can see that Christianity is local saint festivals in in southern France and and that kind of stuff, right? It's not mega churches attached to the CIA that have their own TV stations. That's not (laughs) that's not what it is. But I agree completely, and it's absolutely right that I'm glad that more people can see that that's those are the two lineages in conspiracy land, and and people you can tell the people who haven't done the work of moving past that in their childhood if they're a little bit too it's funny alex jones is only mostly like this but are a little bit too like dominionist about it and and, and they'll get there eventually you can usually tell by their opinion of some someone like terence mckenna like you kind of go what do you think of terence mckenna it's like uh cia and um here to debase the culture and you go great so i'll put you in this category you are this kind of conspiracist <laughs> yeah I, I think i, I agree completely
0: Well, and that kind of brings me towards a question I had about chaos magic. And we already kind of dispelled a lot of that illusion, but I remember, you know, in this time, posts dropping out of college, becoming fascinated with a lot of these books that had this material in it. I ran across a peer who said that they were practicing chaos magic. And even, you know, with my sort of amateurish understanding of the occult, I was pretty disturbed i'm like this guy's doing chaos magic i don't want to get wrapped up in that but i think even that has a lot of that baggage that you know your book really shows how (laughs) the economy's chaotic already this is kind of like the structure through which we can thrive am i uh paraphrasing off what you would say do you agree with that so the guys who invented it
1: or came up with it, in particular, Peter J. Carroll, a British guy in the 80s, living in squats in Stoke Newington in London and then um, sort of in the back of a bookstore um, up in the north of England. Peter says that he named it for, in the 80s, there was a, a very popular chaos mathematics book by James glaik called Chaos. And if you kind of remember, uh, Jurassic Park and all the rest of it has this whole like chaos math thing. It was a big 80s vibe right? Fractals and Mandelbrus sets and all that kind of stuff. So when Peter came up with the, the term, it was based on chaos mathematics. So that kind of idea of predictability and interconnectedness, and it's quite a good way of thinking about magic. The whole butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo, rainstorms in San Francisco idea is actually... Uh, a good way of thinking about magic, right? So it, it comes from that sort of idea of thinking with complex systems is why it's called chaos magic. That's the 80s version, it's the 90s and Peter's books are kind of bundled up and sold particularly in the US by Weiser. And then the rise of the the, the internet, the, like the 90s internet made it, and you know, the 90s had uh, Buffy and the Matrix and all the rest of it. So it kind of gave itself in the in America a spooky vibe. That wasn't necessarily there as a as kind of like anything goes version of it, which also isn't quite right. Like, so Chaos Magic, as Peter conceived it, uh, was rigorous so that you could look at a, a, a solar ritual and go, well, is this going to work as well with Apollo? If I uh, like with Superman as with Apollo, right? So sort of like split testing rituals to find the parts of a ceremony that actually like quote unquote work. Now there are problems with that as a cosmology, but that was what that's what he was doing. And the spoiler is it actually you, it'll work with Superman, but it works better with Apollo, and that's the bit that kind of got missed in the nineties. And and so it got all these kind of like spooky vibes attached to it particularly as it started to associate itself more and more with like necronomicon stuff and so on which is fine like i've got a bunch of different versions of the necronomicon and i certainly fucked around with that extensively as a teenager and what have you so it it sounds scarier than it is because people forget that like chaos was like a cooler word (laughs) in the 80s Uh, and then obviously because of that and because it sort of lost some of the fidelity or, or, or edge to it coming into the 2016 election and all the rest of it people just used that to be almost like a in a good sense ontological terrorism so and that used to be like a traditional hippie freak out if you remember the the simpsons episode and all the kind of like counterculture stuff around robert anton wilson was all about doing things that disrupt culture, particularly with joy, but doing things that disrupt culture, which is this kind of like oppressive framework. Mm. And so that term, when you move that into like Reddit and the Chans, heading into 2016, it started to be associated with like pro-Trump shitposting and all the rest of it. Again, none of that's in there, right? Like that's almost like the term witch. Chaos magic, I can call it what it is as as a chaos magician, but I actually don't own the full reach of the term. And so the people who are talking about, you know, Pepe memesters being chaos magicians, you can use that term if you want. That's not like, it's <laughs> not actual, there's no chaos magic if you're, if you're doing it in ceremonial or or, or serious context, I guess. So that's, that's the, the story of the term. Now what it means, I've got another book, like an, an ebook called Pieces of Eight, which is kind of like essays on chaos magic. And it's essentially an attitude that you adopt to the practice of magic where you don't let yourself off the hook for failures, right? So you, if you want to experiment, experiment, if it doesn't work, be honest with yourself, and either go back to the ones that do work, or this is how you build and innovate. So that's my that's my chaos magic, I guess. Is is the way of saying it. That's what it is, and that's a kind of like a potted history of the term. And the chaos magic I do has, has nothing to do with, and most people has nothing to do with Pepe memesters in in, in late 2015 and 2016. Well, for instance,
0: yeah, <laughs> I like I like that, and I I want to. Maybe ask you to elaborate a little bit more on not letting yourself go when it comes to failures. I may be paraphrasing there, but I think that's extremely important. I don't know if we're taking it the same way. That's why I'd like you to elaborate. I think it's important that you take your failures and you don't let those crush you or let your failures become your identity. I think that's maybe what you would agree with. Can you elaborate?
1: I mean, I would. So, failure in this, in a chaos magic contest, the context is, is very specific. It's like experimental failure. So, what you can't do is let yourself off the hook if a if an enchantment doesn't work. So, you perform an enchantment to get a job. You didn't get the job it didn't work. Because what will typically happen in the magical world, and it's and the trouble is, it's not that this isn't true. And that's kind of the next point I'm going to make. What will typically happen in the magical world is you'll do an enchantment for getting a job, you don't get the job, and you'll justify to yourself why it didn't work. Like, it either wasn't meant to be, or I guess my spirit said something else in store for me, and so on, rather than saying like, or I just didn't do that. That, because I experimented, I didn't do that enchantment particularly well, like it just didn't work. What, maybe you could do the why it didn't work, but you certainly can do. I'm going to try it differently next time, right? So it's a very specific ex, like scientific experimental understanding of failure, which is you're not allowed to let yourself off the hook. even if, and the funny thing is even if your failure isn't the reason, your failure, in enchantment isn't the reason why you didn't get the job because actually most of the time if not all the time the universe does kind of have its way of working things out so it probably is the case that if you didn't get that job it wasn't however you want to phrase this meant to be so it's probably still a true statement but it's not a statement you can use to let yourself off the hook for improving at magic and so that's the that's what i mean like a failure is a it's kind of like a more bigger metaphysical idea is its own thing. But specifically, that's the difference. If you're doing that with your magic, you're doing chaos magic. If you're like... Not letting yourself off the hook <laughs> if it didn't work. I, I'm not just explaining it away because you don't get better at that point. Even if that's true, you don't get better at it. And there's a whole bunch of techniques that have come out of chaos magic that are now in like the wider magical culture and even culture in general that emerged from that mindset. Now, that's not a mindset to take to everything in your life. I would even say it's you could, you should probably restrict it just to <laughs> something like that because there's, there's a, there are healthier and, and more beneficial understandings of failure which you just articulated mark but very specifically it's if your enchantment doesn't work that's what happened you didn't do a successful enchantment and it's it's quite stark and and overly harsh but that's just the technique
0: right now i'm wondering if we can connect this back to shamanism because i think a lot of people misconstrue shamanism as you know a bunch of drunk high you know basically intoxicated sorcerers you know and i think that's like what we've you know got at these edm festivals maybe the results of some of that culture but i don't think that that's necessarily at all what shamanism was initially about i mean those substances were used ritualistically at certain times they certainly weren't smoking weed every day like i am so i'm wondering you know in terms of plant and the plant world how do we start to have a right relation with the the plants where you i mean coffee tobacco all of these sorts of you know intoxicating plants that are in our daily life how do we begin to have a right relationship with those things because i think they they definitely lend lend their help in a lot of ways but they can also lead to a lot of chaos unfortunately
1: And, and that's always on our side, right? Tobacco is the perfect example. And I say this as an ex-smoker, like tobacco, this, let's say mapacho, which is the name of the being in the Amazon. That's like the, the wild tobacco. And so we have, by the time it ends up in your Marlboro light, it's a very different organism and covered in all kinds of chemicals and, and what have you, right? But mapacho as a being is one of the principal plant teachers in the Amazon. And, and it's a protective being. And and so you don't go into ceremony with something like ayahuasca without other beings like mapacho. So if you are, and again, no judgment, but we'll stick with tobacco. And then we'll move to the ones that I like better. If that is you, think about what, like, are you doing that? <laughs> are, you, are you hand rolling your mapacho in the Amazon or are you like inhaling a plant that is essentially or a plant being that is imprisoned inside this demented capitalist machine, you're inhaling it into puffs as you're running to the the train station or something on your way to work. That used to be me, right? Are you, are you in right relation? Like, how is this being touch, you know, touch base with the tobacco being in, in a Marlborough light and, and think, is it happy? And, and that, And that was actually part of my process of moving out of no longer smoking at all, was like, okay, I'm going to switch this up to American spirit and like organic hand-rolled stuff, which is definitely better. And then in the end, like, I can't do that relation. Like I had, you know, 15 years of smoking and that was enough. So that's one of them. The big part of it is to know its story. And the same thing with coffee. Coffee is, in fact, easier now. You obviously pay more, but that's what happens. It's easier now to make ethical choices as much as possible with a being like that. I would also say you need to know the beginnings and ending of its relationship. So I've had one caffeinated coffee in the last six weeks. I love coffee. Like I, I would drink it every day. And I have some decaf if I need it for like health reasons. But I'm kind of like playing in and out with caffeine and addiction and so on. And when I do have a quote unquote normal coffee, it's almost psychedelic, like it's magnificent, <laughs> right? And so it's not necessarily just moderation because you might have a like my um, ayahuasca down here, She her principal plant being is mapacho. And she, it's funny, she got kicked out of her Airbnb when she was traveling earlier because she listed, am I a smoker? And she's like, no, I'm not a smoker. But like, she's an ayahuasca who runs ayahuasca ceremonies. So all her stuff smells of quote unquote tobacco because it's got, you know, tobacco in her bags and all the rest of it. And she got kicked out because the the owner of the Airbnb is like, you said you weren't a smoker. And she's like, I'm not. She's like, the whole place thinks, I just, oh, right. <laughs> so there's a way of recognizing it as a being and and its story. And the same thing with marijuana, right? Marijuana is a separate category to, it's further along on a different journey. So marijuana is a spirit on a mission. And I used to use that term for ayahuasca and I still do, which is to say it has recognized that it has urgent medicine for these times. And a similar thing is happening with psilocybin. And so it's finding more people, it's reorganizing the the legal structure around itself and and allowing it to move into the role it had six and a half thousand years ago when we find you know cannabis seeds in in the pouches of of people who've been buried in in like you know big covered burials in Eurasia. so it's it's moving back into, Uh, a healing uh, function right now that doesn't mean like anything else like tobacco and the rest of it that it doesn't that doesn't mean smoke as much as you want but it does mean that that spirit's on a mission it'll probably walk over you to like complete that mission. So that's that, that's what I mean. Like, say, what do, what being am I with right now? And if if it's cannabis, it's like, okay, cool. Why am I with this? And and is it in a medicinal capacity? Like, I would never, I would never take ayahuasca recreationally. I, it's a struggle to take it recreationally, but like, I would never do that outside of a ceremonial context. Now, the ceremony associated with cannabis is lighter because we're having to we're having to invent them or, or rediscover them now. Ayahuasca has a set collection of praxis so it's the same thing like once you realize that this is a being like how am i in relation with this and and is this a pathological relationship what am i giving back to it how is this working for me because that's the other part of it like to you kind of got to close the relationality loop of um what am i giving back to here so my ayahuasquero in, in in peru has is participating in a bunch of different like shakuna plantations. So like growing the shakuna plant and experimenting, because this is more difficult to do with growing the copy vine, because with the explosion of the popularity of ayahuasca, and he's very particular about which plant beings he selects. He's had to, used to be, when he first started out, he'd only have to go half a day into the jungle to get what he wanted. Now it's like three days there and back to find uh, the the material he needs for the ceremonies so how how are we doing that like the the whole story once you take it seriously as a being as a person is makes it different for every person but that that's universal like what know the being story know it as a being and then like how are you in relation to it is almost like the three steps of of what of answering your question
0: (laughs) well i love that because it's it's really i mean giving me i will say flashbacks no pun intended because I remember smoking cannabis for the first time out of a pipe in a tree house that my father and I built, right? Like really like opening my whole mind up and and I can't leave out tobacco because that was a big part of it. Where I live, you know, kids would smoke blunts, right? So that was sort of inextricable. So I, I kind of got to know Mapacho in a really uh, awfully, you know, uh, condensed sort of misconstrued way and cannabis and you know as you were saying that i'm like wow i wonder how much of my life has been guided by this and when you said the phrase you know it'll walk right over you i'm like well yeah i definitely have experienced that for sure but then there's also this somewhat of a glimpse of that i'm learning something and there's a glimpse of that i'm on the right track and there's a glimpse of like oh maybe i should stick with this now i'm so glad into
1: it like just to follow that up right so Um, For people who, and it's funny, like the word recreational isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy taking um, psilocybin mushrooms. I use them in a ceremonial context. And so I'll do the journeying with them. But because the, the high lasts four hours, whatever, five hours, the ceremony, the journey stuff. So it takes about an hour to come up. It's about an hour or so of journeying and and insight. And then I'm kind of like pleasantly high for a couple of hours, right? And I've actually got a solo show called How and Why to Take Mushrooms that explains the whole practice. Because I lay in, you know, seasonal fruits and like we do the local organic yogurt here and all this kind of stuff. Because when you're with the mushroom, Everything tastes, inc- like real things taste incredible. If you try to eat artificial things, it's it's not pleasant, right? But it's, and so there's this real enjoyment part that, that comes at the end of it. So similarly with, for people who are, quote unquote, recreationally with cannabis, just spend a moment before you spark up or however you're doing it to set an intention of what am I doing? Like... The this is the wrong intention. It's like, oh, I've had a fucked day at work. I'm just going to throw myself on the couch and get high. It's like rephrase that, reorganize that, and set an intention to be with cannabis in its healing capacity and and any insight it may have to like to live a less stressful life or, or what have you. So there, are, that that's important. Like to bring the intentionality to it. Shamanism is basically intentionality, and so that's. I just wanted to jump in there for people who are regu- regularly using it. I think people have a have a love for it, and and they might have a little ritual around you know grinding and and how and how they how they actually do it, which is good. But set an intention like this is a being, and if if you're coming to it for healing, say that right. Like, and if you're not, if you're coming to it for insight, say that. Lean into what it is you would hope to get out of that relation, and yeah.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that you clarified that because. I guess what I was trying to get at is sort of based on what you are saying about the ceremonial use of ayahuasca, really strangely enough, this one person on YouTube comments on every video and they heard me talk about this and they, they keep telling me you have to do DMT. So I'm like, as you're saying that, I'm like, is the DMT spirit working through this person whose screen name is three, I, I, like, cause like shout out so, to you out there, whoever that uh, is.
1: DMT isn't ayahuasca right like ayahuasca is, is a certain being right. so you you come i actually view DMT as a human technology in the same way i view LSD so LSD uh, it would it is a person it might not be a spirit uh, and and i can animists can make that distinction it's annoying but it kind of works right because lysergic acid and say Hawaiian maybe Woodrow's beings but LSD is something humans make, right? And in the same way, uh, DMT is, if we don't make it, we extract and isolate it, right? So there's other things going on in it, which means it's a technology that gets you into a different reality. And so in that sense, that's how I would, because I, I agree, I think, take the, DM, <laughs> take the DMT, DMT. It's, uh, it's an interesting experience, but you're not doing ayahuasca, right? So you sort of let off the hook of if you if someone had sent you like an old milk bottle filled with some ayahuasca that they you know brought back from a ketos I would probably not I would probably say I if it were me I wouldn't do that but DMT in a pen is a human technology and it's a human technology that will get grant you access to another reality. And so that's how I would come into relation with that. So I I agree with this comment Then I think you should take it. You should take it in that context.
0: (laughs) Right on. All right. Well, thank you for clarifying that. And then I guess, you know, you kind of answered my other question that I had, because I was wondering if the ayahuasca being and the cannabis being might be in conflict. Cause I've heard stories of like, you know, I think it was Rupert Sheldrake who said that he was like a frequent cannabis user and he couldn't quit. And then, um, and then he he had an ayahuasca experience and he stopped smoking cannabis. It might've been Graham Hancock now that I think about yeah. it, but yeah. So Sheldon is amazing. <laughs> he has done ayahuasca and I presume he's done marijuana, but like, yeah. Okay. Um, so different British gentlemen.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Graham Hancock was pathologically, he admits this, like pathologically addicted to it and he needed it to write and so on. And about a decade ago now, he, I think he's, I think, Last time he was on Rogan, he smoked weed for the first time in five years. So he's probably back on it. But yeah, he, he went to the jungle and did a dieta and and kind of ended that relationship. He got into trouble for it because he called the article Breaking Up with the Green Bitch. And there's all these, which is fair that a lot of people who are pro-marijuana are like, that's kind of a harsh thing to say. He's like, I didn't, you're right. I meant that my relationship to it was pathological. It's certainly not, <laughs> it's certainly not, uh, I didn't mean anything negatively towards uh, cannabis herself, but yeah, I don't know if they're in conflict, but ayahuasca is a cosmic healer. And so she will heal what you bring to her to heal. And, And Graham brought his addiction to marijuana to be healed.
0: Right. I love that. I wanted to go back to the Chaos Protocol. I think this is something that a lot of people again you alluded to. They they think there's one single cabal that runs the world and we need if we could only f- point the finger at them the whole world will be saved. But I don't I don't really see it that way and what's funny is as I was reading your your book about the fractional reserve banking and how you're describing the ins and outs and how it works. I'm like, this sounds just like this guy, Let's Go Finance, who was telling me on the phone this morning that I should be using this new crypto app and people would you know, place their money in my uh, stake in my podcast, and then they could take it out whenever they want. I'm like, well, I'm not a bank; I'm a podcast. So yeah. it, it was just interesting to see how these same tricks are being rebranded now in the crypto space.
1: Yeah, they're um. Well, it's a spell, so it it works, like, and we're at a point, and it's going to take a generation to work out. Like I, I'm i opposed to central bank digital currencies, but I'm not opposed to digital currencies. There's this uh, tremendous arguments for them, right? I'm generally opposed to any form of, of centralizing, but that is, it's a spell, it's a really good way. And it's in the right hands, well, in everyone's hands rather than in the right hands, it's quite powerful. Like, so, so there are things that have happened with the sort of central bank era in terms of wealth creation so everyone the entire western world and in fact the entire world just has gotten richer just at different speeds right and unfortunately in the middle of it with a handful of billionaires it's it's stratospheric and monstrous right but as a, as a spell as a prosperity spell there's been some good associated with it so the idea of like having a an elastic money supply that can expand and whatever is is a generally good idea but coming back to the single cabal thing people wanted to be that particularly in the the people who've tumbled out of the mega church and ended up in conspiracy wanted it to be a single maybe satanic maybe not cabal of people running the world and and more importantly that if you can there's a T loss to that, which you just kind of mentioned, like if you can just point them out, if you can just like arrest Bill Gates, then everything will be fine. And and that's the same thing. People generally, I uh, had a friend of a friend who went down the 9-11 rabbit hole when I was still in London, so this about eight years ago, and basically lost his whole life to it because very often people do with their first, like, conspiracy, right? They let's they Unless his whole life do it. And our mutual friend was kind of having it out with him, almost like an intervention, like, fine, you know, nine eleven was a whatever you want to call it. What do you do with that information? What, like, because you're just ruining your life with, it. are you, like, are you going to solve it and then march on Washington? Like, what's going to happen? And and that's the other side of once you find the bad guy, it comes with an unhealthy T loss. It comes with an unhealthy to-do list. It's like all we need to do is arrest Bill Gates and it'll be fine. It's not how it's not how the universe works, but it's not your it's not how you're in relation to it. So I like for me, understanding the machinations of power is really important for me to to build my own map rather than some kind of naive justice quest because it won't ever work. Like I remember at the beginning of this whole pandemic nonsense, John Rappaport made the point that this is, we're in a 10,000 year war. This isn't like a new thing. And that's absolutely the right way of thinking about it. I don't really use war metaphors much anymore, but it's the right way of thinking about it, which is that this is a single front or a single theater in a much, much longer war or interaction or journey with in between like you know flourishing and control uh, however you want to call that there you can we can use cosmic beings we can talk about archons we can do whatever but i think the other side of conspiracy land kind of gets there closer or gets there faster gets to the idea of like well what is the point of knowing all this stuff or even the stuff because we don't know as much as we think we do but like what is the point of even pursuing this sort of understanding and that's a really important question that's really important right and and it comes back to having that wider awareness so that you can make plans for yourself whether you want to which i don't think is a very good idea get your podcast tangled up with some new like crypto approach but you kind of know that if you if you have that wider context it's not that you need to you personally mark are going to go and end the fed or something that's the bit that people need to kind of know where they are in relation to the rest of the universe because otherwise it's just you're playing out your psychological drama you're you're getting angry at daddy for locking you in your room when you were five still as an as an adult right and it's it's really challenging at the moment because the machinations of power are like materially impacting and threatening your health. So I get it. But again, the solution, if you, um, the universe had like coming back to Bill Gates is a good example, right? Bill Gates, Clash, well, the rest of them, the whole lot. If it wasn't them, it would have been someone else at this point in time. And so it's not the right way of being with this challenge to kind of like hope for the arrest of whoever of, of, it's because it would have been someone else. Cause this is what happens now. And that's that kind of like magical or metaphysical approach to it, I suppose.
0: Yeah. I, I think that the phrase Philip K. Dick used the black iron prison. Uh, it If you could see the bars, you can touch it. You can recognize you're in a prison. When I read that in your book, it reminded me of a song uh, by, Jedi mind tricks, Vinny Paz. And he uses a David Icke quote where he says just that. But it's so interesting how these pieces of culture echo, you know, many years before what's happening now, what's happening now. And I wonder, you know, what there is to say about that in the kind of reality nexus point where we're at. You know, do you subscribe to the thought that, you know, we're kind of, I mean, it's almost like what you were saying with the chaos magic, but that we're at this nexus point of interchangeable realities and our choice can determine whether in a dystopian future or, or a great utopia.
1: I mean, on the one hand, every point in space time is that point. But on the other hand, no, in the sense that it's important to be optimistic, and it's but it's also important to be realistic. So... And this comes back to that whole interventionism thing. Of people kind of hoping that you can somehow correct this ship somehow. Like, okay, well, we got to get out of this. We've all got to get out of this, and it's just not what happens. Uh, there, are too many people like the Matthias Desmond stuff. Thirty percent of the people are gone, completely brainwashed. Right? There's forty percent in play, but there are going to be people in your lifetime who will still be wearing masks. Like when you retire from whatever it is you do, it's so. Be optimistic, but channel the optimism into local and hyperlocal, and like almost like hyperdimensionally connected local situations is a good example. But it doesn't. The trouble with the, the nexus point idea is that it, it it has. It's almost like that. It's almost like a second coming of Jesus. It's still got that echo of of being saved. It's still got like the whole okay, well, we can all do this now. And it, it's just, I don't think that happens. So if you are, if you've got pinned all your hopes on that and you're not scenario planning other options, you only have yourself to blame. Now it's again, important to be optimistic, but I just, if all of this, if we woke up tomorrow and the whole pandemic narrative was over, the inertia from the damage that's already been caused is enough to kind of unspool the rest of this decade the way i was talking anyway right like we we just suddenly wake up and say ding no one has to take any injections no masks there are plenty of treatments for this kind of stuff no more check-ins no more surveillance no more any of that the the damage that's been done to you know the food supply next year and all the rest of it we still have to account for so i don't think we're at a nexus point where we can all move into or change reality and all be in this new bright future. But we are at a moment, I call it, a, well, I learned it in shaman school, but I call it the Pachakudi. We are in a moment where the people who need to find each other and wake up are in the process of doing so. So we're sort of like the, the, the new civilization that's being built, not everyone lives in it, even though we all live in the same place. And so I'm optimistic about that. I'm optimistic there, is, there are millions and millions of people who probably would have gone along with, because let's be clear, even before the pandemic narrative, it's not like the way we lived was great. So it's not like we were doing the right thing when it comes to the earth and, and nutrition and, and you know equitable resources for everyone, and all the rest of it. So it's not like things were good <laughs> before this whole nonsense happened. But I don't think the people who woke up over the last two years are ever going back to sleep. So, we kind of live in that mycelial connected, hyperdimensional connected network of local communities of awake people. I'm really optimistic about that. I don't necessarily think we are at a nexus point where we end up with a, a physical memeing utopia, if you will.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to something you talked about with Beijing, right? Because as you describe that trajectory of world power, it just fit right in with, again, friend Michael Wan and Ross Ben and what they've been talking about with the 40th parallel, right? So I'm I'm sure you're aware Beijing is on the 40th parallel, Philadelphia is on the 40th, New York City, yeah. and, and and a lot of major places that empires have been built on, as you put. I wonder, you know, less specific to the 40th parallel, have you looked into ley line telluric energy currents and and what do you think the the value of them on that same in that same vein of like hyper connected local fix your local area first I mean how do they play into that soup I wouldn't use a ley line
1: framework as a geopolitical As a single geopolitical predictive framework, I actually just, I like cycle models better. There are, that being said, coming back to like a local level, if you think about what, again, ley lines, ley lines aren't, ley lines are a culture specific way of describing a true thing. So obviously it's, let's just make it easy and say it's a British idea that there are channels of energy that connect different points in a landscape, right? Let's just call it that and why why you have to call it that is when you say that when you say it's a culture specific way of describing something true, then all of a sudden you can put it in relation to feng shui and and other kind of like Chinese or international landscape metaphysics right and And what is a landscape metaphysics? but a, a language of understanding like the power and personality of a place and so in that sense i think it's critical for particularly like living in a local or, or for your local community to do so like I, I obviously i'm maybe a special case but our little permaculture farm here has a bunch of different magic and ceremonial stuff associated with it and and things that are corrected from an astrological perspective buried in different places and so on and that's being in relation to like country and sky country down here so it's not ley lines explicitly you can use ley lines if you vibe with them because what you're doing there is having a like it's having a framework rather than ley lines being true they're a framework to describe a true thing which is that what we call landscape has has energetics and personality and if you do it that way you can also get insight from feng shui or, or what have you and and see which things are expressing in your area but i think it's critical to flourishing local communities to have a healthy and robust language of place.
0: Can we elaborate on that healthy and robust language of place? Because I love the idea of landscape metaphysics. I think we've kind of touched on it a bunch in in several different interviews, most notably with uh, author Peter Shampoo talking about his Archome matrix. And his is more of a a circle pattern almost like a fractal rather than a grid so I, I totally understand what you mean how it's kind of a cultural context and he talks about that in his book how his ley lines are, are somewhat subjective to his observations but you can use his parameters to maybe find significant energetic features in your own area
1: Yeah, then that, I mean, that's a really good example of it then. In the same way that there are certain patterns, and I I just think about this, like I think permaculture is this. I'm the outgoing president of permaculture Tasmania and I'm the permaculture designer amongst other stuff, right? So in permaculture, you learn patterns and then you either apply this is the wrong way of saying it but like you apply them to a landscape or you arrange landscape in accordance with universal patterns the the direction that water flows and you know a, across a pit of land and and the the winter and summer like rising and setting points for the sun and all these kind of and and prevailing weather patterns and all the rest of it so it's it's permaculture at its best is a pattern science right so that you're actually trying to live in accordance with how the universe is patterned i would say feng shui is another really good example of that right so you might not have chinese hills and rivers but there are energetic relationships between certain kind of hills and rivers and the angle of your house and so that that's what i mean by having like a language of place i would include i I wouldn't want to get more specific than that because i would it's easy particularly with normies to start with like a permaculture framework because you're as far as they know, you're not doing anything weird. You're just kind of like, you're just kind of like arranging in accordance with nature, but like what even is nature, right? And then you can kind of move into whichever thing suits. Like if I was if I was building some kind of permaculture community in like outside Glastonbury, somewhere in the West culture, I'd use ley lines, the Michael lines right there. Like a, that sounds like a really good thing to do, right? But it is, it's more about being because that's the right thing to do for there like the michael line doesn't come through my phone so it's more about again i don't think it's weird we of saying it but i'll go with it i don't think you're doing it right if you're trying to apply universals like the, literally the key is for it to be and so it's really difficult to kind of go back up and go, well, what about this one? And it's like, well, it would depend. The, the ones that I think are the closest to universal would be quote unquote natural patterns. And I think the guy who invented permaculture, Bill Mollison, who was Tasmanian, so it actually comes from here. I don't think people realize what kind of philosopher he was because... He was in awe of the fact that, and this is real 70s, 80s fractal stuff again, how erosion works and how the shape of a mountain is approximately the same shape as like a pile of dirt on the mountain. And that is weird. It is weird that fractals are true. Like it is weird in that kind of Hermetic as above, so below sense, which I think is referring to fractals, that the shape of a river is the same, the same kind of like riverine patterns viewed from above whatever angle you get down to heading into the Delta, it's that same kind of split, split, split. That's weird. It's weird that that is a pattern in reality. And that's kind of a really platonic idea of there being some kind of like archetypal patterning capacities for the whole cosmos. And it's our goal to live in accordance with them. And I would put feng shui and and ley lines as part of that recognition. The the patterns include, in fact, are almost always energetic or at the level of the field so that you can't see them. But like, if you don't live in accordance with them, you'll be washed away quite literally in in some cases. So that's what I mean. And it it depends on what you vibe with and what your local area is. If you're in Southeast Asia, there will be place spirits that you build little houses for and, and what have you. But it depends... It depends where you are.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. I didn't expect to get into that as much as we did. And it's really a pleasure because it's become sort of a a through line in the show and, and definitely a through line in my life exploring New England. What's been particularly fascinating in New England, and I don't know if they have these in Tasmania, I assume they might, given that you're on a farm, you're probably familiar, but they have these stone rows that... In some cases are very benign, very, you know, ubiquitous. And they're just piles of stones that farmers in colonial times built. But then in other cases, we're finding huge, almost megalithic stones in these stone rows and they're going through new growth forests. They're going through old growth forests. They're going up the side of Hills. So I'm kind of trying to decipher this language of these stone rows and maybe see which ones were here before the age of Columbus, we'll put it. But we know there were travelers from other lands way before sure. Columbus. And, and yeah, sure. do they do they have stone rose as far as Tasmania?
1: So no no, they don't. There is so Aboriginal Australia is the oldest collect the oldest continually practiced cultures on earth, they've been going for more than 50,000 years, right? And so the language of place is, it's very different in, Abro- in Aboriginal Australia, uh, and particularly in Tasmania, the, the language, it's its much closer to Fum Choi. so that the, uh, you'll find shell middens and things, but the way Aboriginal Australia was on country, in a country that's made by fire, was very much more like that so it was a language of timing and time rather than like stone and structures, and so you they wait for the first snow to do the kind of cultural burning. And in fact, when Captain Cook was coming up the east coast, a similar thing happened uh, uh, with Columbus on the east coast of um, the U.S. But or Turtle Island, but there was like continuous smoke the whole way up, and and this kind of being in relation and, and understanding the custodial role of of arranging and and being with country involved fire more than stone here and when the when the europeans first arrived the landscape the bush looked like English parks, looked like English parkland. At the time, there was an English park designer called Capability Brown, and the whole idea behind that is you would sort of engineer lovely little hills and standing trees and so on. Rather than formal gardens, you would sort of mimic what the English countryside looked like as a landscape design language. And when the Europeans, when the British showed up here, particularly in and around the Sydney area, the... It was like parkland. So there were these sort of elegantly spaced out trees that you could walk in between and, and birds everywhere and like wildflowers at the base of the trees and so on. And that was all under custodianship of, of the local tribes of the area. That's how they lived. So instead of building stones, they just made paradise. Right. And it's it's so it's really interesting to find on an archaeological level. Now there are some like alternative historians who think that there is more megalithic stonework in in Australia. The, the the either people before the Australian Aborigines or much earlier back actually did, but it was much more of a language of being with country. So it's it's art on it's art on walls and it's contributing to the flourishing of the whole system as as a sort of fifty thousand year I dare dare to call it technology because that's kind of our word for it. So it's more you find the impact of Aboriginal Australia. In a good example, so the stonework you will find prior to contact, they would do things like build watering holes for kangaroo. So not to hunt them, but so that the kangaroo had water, so you'll find structures coming from a pre-colonial time in Aboriginal Australia. And the, the cosmology is just so different to ours. It's like, well, why'd you build that? for the kangaroos, why were you hunting them? No, they needed a drink. Um, obviously they were hunting them, but like the the, the role of humans in, in an Aboriginal understanding comes back to that custodianship thing of like, we are here to make this place better. And when you apply to a language or to a landscape, that's the wrong word, to country that is made by fire, when you, when you master fire, And you understand it correctly you are not just like making a gap but there are there are plants that require fire to germinate their seeds cool fire not like the massive bushfires we have because we no longer do it so that you actually improve the plant biodiversity by by understanding of cultural burning but you also open up landscape so that marsupials like the kangaroo can in fact eat so you're growing the number of animals as well as plants as well as yourself as and that that's the aboriginal technology and i'm constantly in awe of it i just think i have this because i wrote a book another book starships A prehistory of the spirits we had this idea that older isn't necessarily better. And I think we can all agree with that, but oldest might be oldest might be the best. And it, it comes back to that idea of, or that feeling we all have in our bones that like, we used to be better at this, like whatever this is, we used to be better at it. That's baked into all our cultures. That's the idea of the expulsion from the garden. Like we used to live better than we do now. There's been some kind of fall. That's the story of Atlantis. That's all of that stuff. And, if we're going to find it anywhere, it's going to be like Aboriginal Australia has seen of ice ages to be practicing for more than 50,000 years, probably up to 100,000. And we should listen. Like if they, they, they learn some stuff, 100,000 years, we're only 2000 years from Jesus. Like that's 50 Jesus lengths. It's amazing. Right. And, and that I love that. Sorry, I went off on a tear there because I love the idea of how, how we are with time and place and, and all that.
0: Yeah. yeah. No need to apologize, Gordon. We're here for it. On the point of the custodial nature of the aborigines, I see that in my own research of the Iroquois nation that lived where I currently live. And you even have evidence that they were doing very similar things with the forces and the cool burn versus the hot burn. I think that is, you know, absolutely fundamental to symbiosis because, I mean, you look at, The animals just themselves as a small example, they're all competing with similar food sources. And because of the ebb and flow of the different populations, if there's not enough wolves, well then the deer overpopulate, they overrun the trees. So the wolves are naturally balancing. And it's interesting to see fire being that balancing agent In Australia, where there's a world, you know, it's a world without mammals. Plenty of snakes and crocodiles and deadly things. Right. You see this different sort of evolution take place there, so...
1: Yeah, absolutely. In all cases, and this comes back to, because I wouldn't even use the word compete there. So what is the human, what what you have when you look at a trophic system, which you're referring to with like wolves, which we learned from Yellowstone National Park, right? Reintroducing the wolves changed the, the behavior of the prey animals, which changed the growth of the trees, which improved the retention of soil on hills, which cleared the water, which allowed the beavers to start building again. So like bringing 12 wolves in did that because it wasn't it's not a competitive relationship that's a 19th century idea it's like a co-creative custodial um, neighborly relationship right and what is it that humans can bring to a uh, landscape that a kangaroo can't a kangaroo with its dumb little hands can't be there you know with flint starting a fire so We eat the kangaroo, or we, although it is available here, so I can say we, but we're referring, let's pretend we're Aboriginal Australians. So we eat the kangaroo, but, and we, and use the plants and so on. And we provide the thing we provide to the niche in the same way that the kangaroo droppings provide for the soil, which provides for the the grass. We're not doing that now. We're not doing what they did for 50,000 years, right? And uh, I try to find, and a good example of why I think we should listen and get that right is that, and this isn't quite correct, but it's, it's, it's sufficiently correct. That I'm going to say it. When Europeans showed up and tried to find Aboriginal herb law, like what's what are your herbalism, what are your healing plants? There kind of wasn't any, or there weren't that many, because they didn't get sick, right? They they had basically the perfect diet, as far as we can tell. They had the perfect amount of sunlight. They were a foot taller than the uh, the Brits when they showed up in their boats. So the whole like, well, how do you how do you deal with scurvy or diabetes? It's like, well, we don't have them. Right, And so we, if you look at cultures that have robust herbalism, there's a case to be made that maybe that's an example of like you're not actually uh, living in right relation, or maybe that's what's required there. And the fact that you can effectively not have a medicine because how you live <laughs> is medicinal, I think is something we should think about, right? It's and that includes the ceremony stuff and and just the the general happiness of it. really fascinating to me that there's not in the same way you find in, in almost any other culture in the world, a robust medical herbalism because it's not that they didn't have them. It's not that they didn't have plants that they would use or eat or so on, but there wasn't a category like that because it's just the way they lived before we got here didn't require it.
0: Right. Yeah. It's definitely been my motto in the past two years. You know, I don't need medication. I got meditation and healthy living is healthy life. And, and anecdotes like that just go to show that yeah we are we're way off track of what we could be and and yeah i i think that's a a great
1: it's a paradise right like you just you live your entire life so before we got here like it's it's warm the whole time you're just living on the beach um eating super abundant seafood partying singing fucking whatever you goddamn want like i'm 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 not i'm oversimplifying the culture obviously but why What an amazing way. What an amazing fifty thousand years. Whether we ever get back to that, there's like too many of us and we don't live that way or any of that kind of stuff. But there's wisdom in that. There's wisdom in what you what we individually and as a culture find to be priorities in, in how the cultures that have lasted the longest actually live.
0: Right. Right. Well, we are coming to the close here, Gordon. So I definitely want to thank you for joining us. But before we go, I notice you have Really cool series on your YouTube channel. I'm not sure if it's on anywhere else or wherever you can find your content, but I noticed the Lee Norman cards you've been going through. Lee Norman, yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine you're going through the archetypical parts of the deck one by one because I noticed just by the titles, it was sort of like Queen, or I think one of them was about the Fool. Am I off there? Can you tell the audience what they can expect to, to find from the Lee Norman card series you're doing?
1: So a friend of mine, Colin, is a Scottish artist and I are creating a Lenormand deck. And the Lenormand is a Oracle sort of 18th, let's just say, late 18th century oracle. So it's not tarot cards. There are 36 cards in a Lenormand deck. And so each week we've gone, mostly each week, we've, every 10 cards we take a week off. We go through and for people who join live, we talk about that card and what we want on it. And then we see it the next week and so on. And we're coming to the end of that project. If And what has happened, so we only got a few cards left and then we, I have to finish writing the book and then we sell it. They're available for sale. You'll find at the links below every video at runesoup.com. But even if you don't want to do that, if you watch from the beginning, each cu- each episode, whilst we'll be talking about, you know, what's going to be on the card, gives you a really good understanding of each of the Lenormand um, the cards themselves. But it doesn't have a full, it starts with the rider. But yeah, so like that's been really fun. And it is on, it's basically just on YouTube. I think it's also because my YouTube order publishes to Odyssey. You can find it there. But even if you're not going to watch a live, each episode is a really interesting. I think this first time anyone's ever done it. Like a week people have done it with tarot, but like a weekly deep dive on each of the Lenormand cards. And that will result in a deck and a fortune telling book that will be out sometime. This quarter, I want to be more specific, but Animistic's been delayed as well because everything is delayed at this point in time with shipping and all the rest of it. So I'm just going to say this quarter that Lenormand deck will be out. But if if you're into Oracle reading or tarot card reading or any of that sort of stuff, it's been a really, really fun project.
0: Love it. Well, I'm eager to dive into that. Cause as you could tell by my question, I was not familiar. So thank you for clearing that <laughs> up. And, and yeah, I think that's fascinating. I don't have any Oracle decks myself, but my girlfriend does. Uh She has one themed on the goddesses. I think it's like a goddess <laughs> yeah. Oracle deck, but this has been a real fun time, Gordon. Thank you so much and remind people Again, where they can find you, obviously Rune Soup. you're on Odyssey, you're on YouTube, you got the podcast and all the podcast apps, the same one you're listening to this on. Where else can they find you?
1: That's it. Everything that ever happens uh, in my life is at RuneSoup.com. There's some telegram groups and that kind of stuff, and you can find it all, including um, booking for energy healing sessions and the rest of it at RuneSoup.com.
0: Beautiful. Alright Gordon, well thank you so much for joining us here and thank you for listening folks out there. Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Alright ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking with us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and what a conversation with Gordon White. Mapacho, we talked about ayahuasca, we talked about landscape, metaphysics, something that you know we've been talking about a lot on the show lately and if you like that kind of stuff. Go over to our rock fin because you know the the weather's changed a bit. It's kind of cold out, but as soon as uh, as soon as I get back out on a hike, I'm planning on making another survey video. So if you like metaphysics or landscape metaphysics, sign up on the rock fin and show us some love. Check out our videos there, uh, my own personal investigations into some landscape metaphysics. So it was so cool that that came up today. Obviously, Gordon's unreleased, yet-to-be-released book, Animistic, will be touching on that and many other brilliant things. And Gordon, I mean, you heard me say it, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, really well-spoken, really clear thinker, and a really, really highly skilled communicator. I mean, some of the concepts... That he relayed here in this episode. Go deep, so don't don't worry. I too feel like I need to go back and listen to this one again. So uh, show us some love and and hit the rewind button. Download the episode twice. Listen to it twice. That'd be freaking sweet. I know I'm gonna listen to it, and uh, and I usually never do that because. Uh, for whatever reason, after I record a podcast, I don't typically like to hear my own voice. Uh, I do listen to the times that I'm on Tinfoil Hat just because I I never want to miss a single episode of Tinfoil Hat. So I cringed my way through the uh, Swarmies episode that I was on. But also I probably said some cringy things there that I uh, only said out of nervousness. I mean, come on. Can you blame me? Sam's a, a professional comedian. I'm just an average guy who loves conspiracy theories and occult symbols and strange, bizarre stories that make you wonder uh, what kind of reality are we really living in. And this year in 2022, we hope to have more interesting people on the show, more stories like the one we had with Ron Weed, more researchers like the conversation we had with Peter Shampoo And friends of the show, of course, like the ones we've had with uh, Ron from New England, Alex Stein, uh, even Matt from the Great Deception podcast, Matt Raymer, Chris Matthews, and the homie Romy. That's just in the past few days. And actually, we had a nice little run there where it was all guests that I met in person. Um, Tim, or I'm sorry, Etienne and uh, Owen Hunt. But anyways on to the next gordon white thank you so much be sure to check out his lee normand oracle cards that him that he is creating himself and uh oh a couple things that i wrote down for for today's episode so uh, a lot of loose jackers a lot of loose loose jackers out there on the inner waves uh keep hating It's all love on this end. I never told anybody not to listen to anybody's shows. I just don't endorse what some podcasters choose to do in their personal time uh, and what they qualify as research. Very interesting stuff. Fill in the blanks. I'm not going to talk about it because we're above that. This is a positive show, and we're not going to engage in the truther drama on this show. Hint, hint. Um... Anyways, one of the really interesting synchronicities was that an old friend that I had, an old friend, Ryan uh, B. is his last name, B. I don't want to give out his identity, but just for c- clarification's sake so people don't confuse it with the other person by that name who has come up this week. Um, so my friend Ryan B. back when I was in sorry, my college days, we'll say, Even though I dropped out, um, he was not really a fan of my, uh, it's hard to explain, but Ryan and I were really good friends. Ryan B. Okay. This is again, not a podcaster. It's just a, a weird coincidence that this person has the same name. Um, so Ryan B, we'll call him B. We'll just call him B. So B used to have, um... An apartment that I lived in, and he had um, a job as a manager of a um, ca- like a canvassing group, like a political group, and um, and it was you know environmental cause. I was a young naive dumbass who got involved with that kind of stuff, and <laughs> really for like a short amount of time, just canvassed and and barely made any money, but I had a good time uh, hanging out with B and living with him and his friends um santosh in their apartment and um and as we got to know each other they started to realize like oh mark's a little strange mark's a little weird he you know believes in things that we don't believe in and so we would have a lot of debates a lot of debates about the nature of reality we'd have a lot of debates about the nature of life supernatural and like the things that I believed in would always clash with what they believed in. You know, I be- believed 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, I actually, I felt like it was more than just a belief. It's a fact. <laughs> so, but either way, all of these conspiracies and fringe stuff, uh, you know, they're also um, individual and not mutually exclusive. So it's hard to just like stereotype it all into one category, but you get where I'm going. Well, what's so funny about what B did, um, was B sort of kind of had enough with me at one point and we kind of had a falling, uh, falling out and B really like, even though we were in the same friend group, B just wouldn't talk to me and, and it hurt, you know, cause I, I'm the kind of guy who like naively thinks like, uh, you know, it can't, can't harm anyone and you end up harming people and, and it, it hurts, it feels bad and I regret it. So I apologized and, you know, B is the type of person that, you know, didn't really give a fuck about my apology. So either way, what was interesting was when, when B and I had the falling out is he offered, um, he, he was like, you know what, Mark, like, I really don't agree with, you know, the way you see the world. He's like, you really should read Descartes. (laughs) Which when Gordon White brought up Descartes today in today's conversation, it was, it was like a jaw drop because I mean exactly what Ryan B was trying to do back in whatever college, um, by showing me Descartes was what Gordon explained, uh, kind of was the opposite of what Descartes was trying to do. So I thought that was so funny because, you know, like that's how I felt when I was trying to convince B that the world was so much more interesting than he uh, then his logical mind would allow him to to say and and you know, Descartes for him was like, oh see, look, the the world isn't supernatural. Descartes proved it. Meanwhile, Gordon White told me straight up today and told you guys too, you heard it that Descartes, that was not his intention, but uh in a sort of uh, um, cosmic joke kind of way, he ended up, you know, making this really strong case against what he believed in. And that's what I was, you know, unfortunately, hippie Mark, mystic Mark, you know, that, that's really who I am. Like I I've always been hippie mystic and just kind of like taking that, taking that thing one step further, you know, whereas most people might be like, Oh yeah, I read books and stuff. And I like crystals. Like I made that stuff uh, a part of my life an inextricable part of my life. And I don't regret it. Uh, you know, it caused me a little bit of um, social issues here and there, but with certain people who maybe thought I was strange. But that's fine, because now I'm right at home with all of you. So I just thought I'd give a shout out to B Ryan Becker. Um, and uh, if you're listening out there, homie, shout out to you. I hope you're, uh, <laughs> I hope you're doing well. So, anyways. Another interesting connection was mapacho Uh, mapacho being this protective wise teacher. Now I'm not going to sit here and pretend like the backwoods that I buy at the gas station are mapacho. But if you took every um, tobacco leaf that they sell in a gas station and compared um, them, you might see that the backwoods is the most natural looking and therefore maybe the most uh, conducive form of Pacho. I don't know, but I'll just say that part was particularly thrilling for me uh, because I didn't know that name. I didn't know that was the word that they used to describe the tobacco spirit in the Amazon. And now I feel like I know tobacco a little bit better. I don't want to endorse that people smoke, but I find that smoking tobacco and cannabis together... Um, has brought me tremendous insights. And just like Gordon said, it's all about intention and setting your intention. You know, if you, you go to a concert and you smoke a blunt, you know, don't expect to be sitting down an hour later reading Manly P. Hall. But if you, if you smoke blunt and you're in a library, <laughs> buckle up because you're going to find some cool shit. That's how I, that's how I approached it. And that's what I used to do with my library. And that's why I've Been really obsessed, especially lately, with adding new books to my library. Um, Speaking of which, I just got two new books in the mail today. Uh, One of them is the second in the Empire of the Wheel series by Walter Bosley and Richard Spence. It's called Empire of the Wheel 2, Friends from Sonora. And then the other book that came in the mail, which I'm very excited about. It's a big book. It's big. It's got an endorsement by Joseph Farrell on the cover. It's called The Handprint of Atlas by Shesh Harry. The Artificial Axis of the Earth and How It Shaped Human Destiny. Wow. Wow. And then in light of uh, what we talked about today with Gordon, I think it fits into the landscape metaphysics at the very least. Now, back to Gordon, though. As I mentioned, I picked up his book, The Chaos Protocols. And, you know, Gordon's a big deal, to me at least. And I got a little nervous, didn't really ask all the questions that I wanted to ask. So I think maybe right now we can go through his book just a tad bit and give you guys some teasers. Um, in case you want to go and buy this book yourself, I think it's definitely worth your while. So the chaos protocols, magical techniques for navigating the new economic reality. So he's got chapter one, recognizing the bars. Um, Just another way of saying, recognizing that you're in a prison. Um, chapter two, a probabilistic universe, chapter three, becoming invisible Four armies of the dead. Five, ambivalent allies triggering sync. Six, the magnificent game of the king. Seven, wish-granting squiggles. And eight, how to wage a mind war. Then there's a conclusion and an appendix, but you know, I want to say that these chapters are not what you might expect from a book that claims to teach you Magical techniques for navigating an economic reality. I mean, they're talking about Hermes. They're talking about Anubis. They're talking about an amalgamation of the two called Hermanubis. Bitch, never heard of that one before. Shout out to Slick Dissident. Hermanubis, brother. <laughs> Shout out to Gabe. Gabe, hit me with the fucking breakdown on Hermanubis. Please. I want, I want the numbers. I want... I want a full Slick Dissident report sheet on the, on the word Hermanubis. And if you guys want to know what I'm talking about by a Slick Dissident report sheet, go over to the, uh, my family thinks I'm crazy, Telegram, where my homies are constantly going back and forth, different people every day. There's the same old characters, and there's some new faces as well. So join the gang. It's growing, and uh, Slick is always, always putting some cool Cool info in the chats. So you're missing out if you're not on the Telegram chats. Let's read this. Uh, let's read this here. So Hermanubis. One of the purposes of running through running you through uh, a synocephalic history at some length is to n- announce that you can get yourself a statue of Saint Christopher from almost anywhere and have a ready-made almost voodooized home for her- Hermenubis on your altar. Ideally, try to find one with a lamp, a sacred symbol of Hermes. Ooh, that connects to what I was looking into with Austin, Texas, and how they have a lamp on their flag. That represents Hermes, the messenger. And that's funny, because what do we traditionally think of when we think of a lamp? We think of a genie, a genie coming out of a bottle or a lamp. Right, and he grants you some wishes. It's kind of like a message. I don't know. So, wow. I mean, I'm not gonna read anymore because I want you to get this book for sure. But not only does Gordon straight up give you some uh, some spells to try out, he uh, and <laughs> some of my dejectors are gonna really hate this, but. You know, when you get this big, when your show's growing, you got haters, that's fine. Uh, But the occult dejectors might think that uh, there's some dark symbolism in here. But you know what it is, folks? It's the same argument that conservatives make with guns. It's like guns don't kill people, people do. Well, by that same logic, occult symbols don't kill people, people do. So let's get that out of the way real quick and again not trying to air any dirty laundry here because this isn't the place for it folks this is the my family think some crazy podcast where we vibe on love brotherhood truth sistership as well but most importantly truth and as gordon put it right relationship and i'm glad he brought that word into my zeitgeist into my vocabulary that and many other words uh today and i think that's key it's pivotal how do we find right relationship i think that's really what the the show title is all about my family thinks i'm crazy because i am trying to live in right relationship with the earth and they don't even understand what that is (laughs) no offense to them they got a lot of other shit going on and all credit to them They're pretty good at doing what they do. I just hope one day people will recognize me for being good at what I do here. So anyways, uh, a lot going on this week. Let me pause here for a second. Uh, I think we have a couple new patrons who are definitely going to get spirit animal names. Um, Hold on one second. All right. Our Patreon audience is growing every week. So thank you so much for all those who have joined us. Thank you so much to everyone who supported us, whether you're still with us or not. We love you. And if you want to support the show, go over to myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. There's a bunch of different ways. We have merch. We have art. We have PayPal. We have a Patreon and a Rockfin with tons of bonus content. And we have a book list. That's right. If you want to do an episode with me, maybe you're a fan of the show. Maybe you're another podcaster. Well, I got a really cool idea, I think, for a way that we can do that and not maybe bore each other to death. Uh, Let's buy the same book, you know. Say, hey, Mark, I got you this book off your list. I'm going to send it to you, and then we're going to do an episode on this topic. That's a great idea. Or maybe uh, you see that you have the same book as One that I already have, Um, in case you didn't know, I do a podcast called The Library of the Mystagogue, where I recommend five books from my library each episode. I put one or two out in December, but I will be putting out three a month, so stay tuned for those in January. They're only available on the Patreon, but either way, folks, the book list through Amazon, those are books I don't have yet. So, if you're interested in that opportunity, hit me up. Say, "Hey, this is what I want to talk about." Whatever. Uh, if you can send a book, that's even better. That'll get you a spot on the show immediately. Uh, but you know, I definitely don't want to rule it out. If uh, if you can't go out of your way and spend money on a book, but keep in mind, folks, this is all coming out of my back pocket. Um, you know, thanks to the lovely supporters, it's a lot easier. But I do this podcast. Um, all on my own, really, from recording to editing to producing to publishing to promoting to uh, managing and all the other things that go on with this podcast. <laughs> I'm doing it all, so can't. Um, <clears throat> it's 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 a lot easier when I have some help from you folks. So, thank you so much. If that sounds cool to you, do it. Buy me a book. But anyways, I'm getting way off track. We have two new patrons, and I just want to give them both a shout-out. Shout-out to you, John B. The second, and shout-out to you, Heather. John B., we've got your spirit animal name right here. Ooh. All right. This card is bent, so I don't know if it's coming up in the deck multiple times, but this is a cool synchro because we just... We have a few groups that are forming here. Like there's some dragons, there's some bears. I got another lion, okay? So, John B., you are the Whirling Lion. Uh, you got the Whirling Rainbow card, which represents unity and wholeness achieved. Uh, and you got the Lion card. So, um, you know... You can be the rainbow lion. You can also be the united lion. I just thought whirling lion sounded coolest. So we're going to go with whirling lion. And uh, Heather, shout out to you, Heather. Thank you for being a patron. Your spirit animal name is, ooh, you are the Coco Pelle Dolphin or the Fertile Dolphin. You got the dolphin card and you got the Coco Pele card, which represents fertility. Uh oh. Hit up Alex Stein. He's fertile too. Just kidding. Anyways, those are the spirit animal names. If you want one, if you think it sounds cool, if you think it sounds racist, I don't give a fuck. They're spiritual animal names. And if you want one, go over to the Patreon, show some love, and join the family. Get a fun little nickname that you can use in the Telegram chats. Uh, it's funny giving out spirit animal names after what Gordon White said at the beginning of this conversation about, um, about the term animism. And he's absolutely right. I mean, that was a time where, unfortunately, there was one group of people who thought they were superior to other groups of people that they were, you know, pretty um, new to interacting with. But for the past 500 years or so, we've had, you know, this sort of destruction of those indigenous cultures. And and yeah, Gordon's right. There's only two or three actual tribes. If we want to really be purists about the term tribe and what a tribe is and what it means to be uh, truly outside of mainstream society, then yeah, there's really only a couple. I mean, there's the guys that are pretty famous on... uh, Senegal Island over there in the Indian Ocean, you know, they don't, uh, is it Senegal Island or Sentinel Island? I think it's Sentinel Island. I, those, those guys, they're the ones who, you know, they'll basically spear anybody who comes on their Island. So (laughs) there's no getting to them. And then, um, and then there's the remote tribes that are still in the Amazon. So yeah, it's sad to talk about that, but you know, I think, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and yes, there are crimes that have happened to groups of people. But I mean, is there one single group of people that has uh, their hands clean? I don't know. I don't know. But I just try to avoid the political stuff because I, I'm not a I'm not a genius, you know. I'm not a, a scholar, and I'm definitely not a social justice warrior. But I have a lot of love for. Indigenous peoples, Indigenous cultures, and whether touched or untouched, the tribes of North and South America. Uh, And I think, you know, for all the awful atrocities that have happened, um, I am grateful that there is still some culture left for us to connect with. And I think I've said this before, but, you know, I was born here in North America and I feel like the spiritual culture of this continent is more appropriate to me and my spiritual life than maybe the ones that my ancestors had. I don't know. Just my stoner thoughts. But either way, this has been a insightful, expansive, and informative episode with Gordon White, host of Rune Soup, author of the Chaos Protocols, and the soon-to-be-released Animistic. Be sure to check out his Lee Norman cards, the Oracle cards that are coming out in Q1. Uh, Q1, I like how Gordon breaks everything down into cues. I had no idea what the hell he was talking about when, <laughs> when I first <laughs> heard him talk about cues. I'm like, is this having to do with QAnon? <laughs> no, no quarter uh but anyways little uh, uh business sounds like some some white collar stuff to me i don't know either way gordon is a wealth of information so be sure to go over to rune soup and check out everything he's doing like he said rune is the place to find everything gordon white and I definitely recommend checking out his interviews with Greg on the Higher Side Chats because that's how I first encountered Gordon. And I really appreciate the way Greg interviews his guests. I hope I can achieve that level of professionalism one day with this show uh, and bring my own flair, my own flavor, my own style to the podcasting world. Because Greg's show is great. He has definitely inspired this show a ton. As well as my homie Sam Tripoli. Shout out to Sam. If you haven't heard the Swarmies episode. That's right. I was on Tinfall Hat for my third time. Uh, sorry, fourth time. Uh, second time doing the Swarmies. So go check that out. It is episode... Let's see here. Go check out episode 523 uh, of Tinfoil Hat with myself, Sammy T, Jay Nice, and XG in the place to be. Uh, I was also on the show way back last year in, uh, let's see, for episode 411, the first time we ever did the Swarmies. Uh, I was on episode 395 agostino zoida and david lugo and then finally my first appearance the infamous episode 377 the black magic legacy of alistair crowley with yours truly so go check those out if you're a fan of tinfoil hat and you're a fan of me i'm sure you already have uh, and that does it for today's episode thank you so much for listening to the my family think some crazy podcast have a great moment wherever you are in the now